My name is Inu Manik. I'm a visiting scholar here at the Herbert E. Stiefel Center for Trade Policy Studies. And joining me here today are a great group of panelists who know far more about the Jones Act than I do. Uh, and to my left, I'll go in order, is Dr. Kali'i Akina, who is President and CEO of the Grassroot Institute of Hawaii. Next to him is uh, Ambassador Retired, uh, former Ambassador to Belgium, Howard Gutman, and also Managing Director of the Gutman Group. Uh, next to him is Thomas Grenis, uh, who is Professor Emeritus of Economics at North Carolina State University. And next to him is Michael Hansen, uh, who is President of the Hawaii Shippers Council. So thank you all for being here today and being on this panel. So the previous sessions have outlined uh, a common theme in the Jones Act, revealing that while the costs are significant, they're sort of spread out across the economy as a stealth tax. As a result, building a coalition to reform the Jones Act is quite difficult. Uh, this is also compounded by the fact that the beneficiaries are very concentrated, well-organized, and resist any changes to reform. This doesn't mean that reform efforts have not been attempted. Uh, from state-level resolutions, as we'll hear in Hawaii and the other non-contiguous jurisdictions, to the numerous attempts for exemptions and amendments put forward by even the late Senator John McCain, the Jones Act's critics have persisted. However, because the Jones Act is not in the minds of Americans on a day-to-day -day basis, save for the exceptional tragedies that we do have, like with Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico, the political momentum for reform is often lost. So this session will address options for reform, bearing the challenges in mind to achieving these reform proposals. So to start, before I ask my first question, I want to make a point of clarification about what I'm going to ask the panel to begin with in dissecting reform proposals, uh, because the Jones Act can be considered sort of in a broad sense, which is all the US coastwise laws, regulations, judicial and administrative rulings uh, that have to deal with that. But I want to focus on Section 27 of the Merchant Marine Act of 1920, and take that as the starting point in saying, what are some of the reform proposals that have been put forward so far to reform this law, and what aspects of this law would they affect? So please, to my panel. Would you like to start, Michael? Excuse me. Would you like to start with that Oh, one? OK. Yeah, thank you very much for uh, Cato inviting me to the conference here. Uh, appreciate it very much. Uh, my name is Mike Hansen. I'm with the Hawaii Shippers Council. Uh, we were formed in 1998. Uh, to support uh, the Jones Act Reform Coalition, which Rob Cortell led, and uh, also to seek uh, uh, specific uh, reforms uh, to the merchant to the Section 27 of the Merchant Marine Act of 1920 that would benefit what are known as the non-contiguous jurisdictions. That's basically uh, Alaska. Hawaii, and Puerto Rico, and also to a certain extent Guam. Guam has a unique status in that it's exempt from uh, the Jones Act when specifically meaning Section 27 of the Merchant Marine Act in the instance that it uh, uh, foreign-built US flagged vessels can be used, and those vessels can be owned by a foreign entity through a US corporation. So that's uh, a bit different than what the other jurisdictions are dealing with. Our reform basically called for allowing foreign-built US flag ships, self-propelled over 1,000 gross tons, to be allowed to carry cargo 
in what are known, known as the non-contiguous trades. Uh, the primary uh, objective was to lower the capital cost of the shipping companies that are operating in those trades, that is the carriers, to the benefit of the shippers, shippers meaning the uh, merchant cargo owners, and ultimately that would flow to the consumers. Uh, not only would the uh, allowing foreign-built U.S. flags into the trade lower the capital cost by approximately four-fifths, but it would also bring new competition into those trades, um, uh, new competitive pressures into those trades as soon as the barrier to entry is dropped so dramatically by allowing uh, lower cost ships into the trade. Uh, this, th we believe that that would uh, increase uh, necessarily the amount of competition in the trades and lower freight prices and costs in general. Uh, this being important in Hawaii and the other non-contiguous uh, jurisdictions because typically living and uh, business and uh, living costs are higher. For example, in Hawaii, if you look at the Department of Commerce Bureau of Economic Analysis, regional trade uh, regional uh, cost parity data, uh, Hawaii is running around 19% higher than the U.S. average, and that's the broadest measure of costs in the economy. And when you look at the uh, USDA, U uh, U.S. Uh, Department of Agriculture figures for uh, food at home, uh, the cost in Hawaii is over 40% greater than the national average. So these are significant cost differences which we think that can, can't be completely uh, cured by reforming the Jones Act, but certainly we can make some progress uh, towards reducing those costs. Very interesting. So I, I'd sort of like to focus on, on one specific uh, reform idea that was mentioned in an earlier panel um, that was put forward as uh, production subsidies uh, in return for eliminating the U.S. build, flag, crew, and ownership requirements. Now, I know, Tom, you've written a little bit about this. Mike, you have some knowledge of this, too. I mean, could you briefly explain what this would do and, and to what extent would it solve the problem? Because as I understand, uh, you know, we had something similar to this at some point, which was the U.S. program for construction differential subsidies. And maybe you can touch upon that as well. So please, Tom. As, as production subsidy was discussed a little bit in the earlier discussion we had, those uh, ugly diagrams of triangles and all that. And, and so the, the idea is that uh, production subsidy in some narrow sense would be more efficient than the Jones Act uh, or, or a quota. Uh, in, in the sense that you'd lose one of those triangles and not the other. So the idea in terms of this inefficiency would be uh, Jones Act is, is essentially a quota of zero on foreign ships. You can't have any or a prohibitive tariff. The result of that is you have two losses. There's the higher price that the consumers eventually bear and also the higher inefficient production. So you lose both of those. With the production subsidy, you would allow competition. You allow foreign ships. You would simply make a direct payment to the producers. So you would still lose this, this inefficient production, which would have the low price. You'd save the consumer loss. So that, that's the sort of logical case for, for production subsidy. Now, it's been tried in the past. So we had, we had the US government subsidizing production and management of ships for some time. Uh, finally, uh, it got so expensive in the, in the Reagan years, it was eliminated. Uh, <coughs> the fact it was eliminated is kind of interesting in the sense that 
If you're the protectionist, uh, you don't like these direct subsidies because they show up in the budget. Everybody can see them. They can say it's exorbitant. You can get rid of it. So it's, it's, it's kind of a problem. But, but if, you, if you're looking for efficiency, you like the fact that transparency, you want to see that in the budget. How big is it? And if it's too big, you, you can get rid of it. Okay, so that's been gotten rid of in the U.S. What's interesting nowadays, I think, is that now increasingly we hear from our government in Washington referring to foreign production subsidies and how they're killing us and how these are terrible things. Foreigners are, are subsidizing all kinds of things, including Chinese subsidizing ship production, uh, uh, et cetera. And most recently, we found Japan filing a case before the WTO claiming illegal improper production subsidies in South Korea. So all of a sudden, this production subsidies having a bad name even, even in the United States. Uh, uh, so that's essentially the issue. So you don't think this would rank as high as one of the political compromises that could be made to reform the Jones Act? Yeah, I mean, if, if, if you had to do something, uh, there's a case for production subsidies being better than uh, the Jones Act. In the sense, you get, you get the, uh, competitive prices. Yeah. Interesting. Mike, did you have anything? Uh, yeah, the, um, there was a production subsidy for the construction of uh, deep draft ships in the United States. And that was put in place by the Emergent Marine Act of 1936. And the uh, program was known as the Construction Differential Subsidy Program. And that provided a subsidy to the US shipbuilding yard uh, to produce uh, ships for employment in the foreign trade of the United States. Not in domestic trade, but in the foreign trade of the United States. And uh, those subsidies were based upon estimates of what it would cost to build the same ship in a foreign shipyard. And the differential then was paid by the US government through the Maritime Administration to the, sh to the shipyard. And that program was actually defunded I think it's still on the books, but it was defunded by the Reagan administration in 1982. And uh, they did that. It was defunded because the program had gotten so out of hand. The shipyards, the US shipyards that were building these ships for employment in the foreign trade and receiving the CDS subsidies got so good at fleecing the government that the government finally decided to shut down the program. Did you have something to add? Right, you know, you were talking a bit about the strategies to be able to accomplish Jones Act change. And I think it's important for us to understand that the, the proposals that have been put forth have often been too narrow or too broad. Too narrow in the sense that they may have dealt with only one jurisdiction, a region like Hawaii or Puerto Rico or Alaska or one industry and so forth which doesn't really deal with the overall national impact of the Jones Act. On the other hand, it may be too broad sometimes when we call for a full repeal of all aspects of the Jones Act. I've committed a little bit of heresy here, if you'll see my paper that I prepared uh, for the conference. It's called Updating the Jones Act for the 21st Century, subtitled Why It's Time to Quit Calling for a Repeal of the Jones Act. Now, f forgive me for that religious uh, heresy for a moment here. I do believe that in a perfect world, there would be no Jones Act. But at the negotiating table, although we know that the arguments for national security and for protection of union jobs are specious by the other side, why not let them have that? Uh, they get the feeling of national security. And I say it's a feeling, it's a religious belief, it's uh, an ideology. 
and the security for union jobs, they get those from three planks of the Jones Act, and that is the U.S. flagged, the U.S. crewed, and the U.S. owned planks. Now, we don't gain a lot by eliminating those planks economically. The vast majority of economic benefit and free market uh, benefit comes from eliminating the U.S. build requirement. And if we focus on eliminating the U.S. build requirement and leave on the table for the other side their good feeling or their ideology of national security and defense of union jobs, then we may be able to bring them along collaboratively. And once again, please know, in a perfect world, I believe there would be no Jones Act. But we're having to look at strategies. And in Hawaii in particular, which is a predominantly single-party state, a state in which the forces of the unions, the monopoly shipbuilding companies, and the political party in power have colluded, we have to give them something that they are getting out of the deal if we're going to ask for Jones Act reform. So it may be better for us uh, to go after a strategy of updating it for the 21st century. And I'll just add one thing before handing off to my colleagues. Even in this current Republican administration under President uh, Trump, <laughs> Trump. Yeah. No, no difficulty in saying that, but even in the current Trump administration, there is such an ideology of protectionism of American jobs. We need to leave something on the table for the Trump administration as well calling for a repeal only of the build requirement could get under the, the table. Thank you. Uh, so I just want to pick up on, you mentioned Hawaii, and I think it's been noted in various occasions today uh, that the Jones Act, the impact of the Jones Act is felt very disproportionately uh, among the non-contiguous jurisdictions, so Alaska, Hawaii, and Puerto Rico. Now, they face a larger share of the cost, and I think that's fairly clear from, from the data as well. Now, I want to show a video uh, that illustrates how the Jones Act has impacted small businesses in Hawaii by looking at the experience of the Kaloa Rum Company in particular. Uh, so if you turn your eyes to the screen, uh, please watch Bob Gunter, who's president and CEO of the Kaloa Rum Company, explain to you the challenges of the Jones Act to Hawaii. We are geographically and logistically challenged here in Hawaii. We are nearly 3,000 miles from any continent and 90% of what we consume in Hawaii comes in by ocean cargo. All of us who live here pay a premium on just about everything that we purchase because of the Jones Act. There are two shipping companies that comply and so there is very little opportunity for competition and as a result we pay higher freight rates. It adds another layer to the cost of doing business here. And at the end of the day, it makes us less competitive. We shipped a 20-foot ocean container of rum to Australia. The freight rates to the West Coast was about $5,900. From the West Coast to Sydney in Australia was $1,900. There's no one in Hawaii that makes glass bottles. There's no one here that makes caps and labels. So all of that has to be shipped in by ocean cargo. It costs us now approximately $6,500 just for freight to get a container load of glass bottles shipped from the west coast. And then we make the product, fill the bottles, and ship it back at the same cost. Our competitors who are making rum avoid that cost. You know, it's just not fair how we are impacted than the other 48 contiguous states or not. I believe that repealing the Jones Act would open up competition, which would in turn lead to lower freight rates, and it would give us generally more flexibility 
Once people really fully understand that everything that they buy has that premium attached to it, I think there would be a, a groundswell of support. It's time to change. want you to touch on this as being our delegates from Hawaii sure. and explain a little bit about how this specific example relates to the broader challenges that Hawaii faces in particular because of the Jones Act. Sure, Inu. You know, I spoke with Bob Genter this afternoon uh, mainly because I wanted to make sure the rumor I'd heard that he'd sent up a case of Koloa rum for our reception today was true, and he said it is true. <laughs> and, and he's a friend of mine, and in the conversation he pointed out that the biggest problem he has with the Jones Act is it makes him less competitive than his competitors across the world. And, and that's a real problem for him and his business. Uh, we have a friend, who, and his business was referred to a little bit earlier in a prior panel, who owns a company called the French Gourmet, which sent delicacies from Hawaii all the way across the world, even to Dubai. And yet uh, the government, through the Jones Act, has pretty, pretty much shut them out of business. We went to federal court and documented the fact that the shipping costs because of the monopoly that the Jones Act allows in Hawaii have just gone through the roof in such a way that in one year, the owner of the French Gourmet was paying $4,000 for a container to be sent. And in the three years later, he was paying $12,000 for the same quantity to be shipped. And he had to go out of business. And I could tell you that story over and over from Hawaii. Uh, in answer to your question, Inu, the point is that when we put a human face on the Jones Act and stop simply talking about protectionism or the free market and so forth, people can get what's going on. And the stories that we have coming from Hawaii are across the country, actually. There are actually hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of business people who, if they had the right information, could talk about the impact of the Jones Act on their business. And I think that's going to be, have to be part of the reform effort. Mike? Uh, yeah, those are two examples that are probably not very indicative of, of the problems that people are facing. Uh, in the case of the Colo rum uh, incident shipping to Australia, there is, in fact, uh, direct shipping from Hawaii to Australia. Uh, he was not aware of that at the time he made that shipment and therefore incurred the cost of shipping the container to the West Coast and then having to transload it and reship to Australia. Uh, he contacted me about five years ago, and I informed him of the, of the alternative, and I think he's been able to uh, take advantage of that since. And in the case of the, uh, the, Gorm, the, uh, the baker in Honolulu, he was shipping in the international trade. He was, this was not a case that he was shipping. Yes, he was shipping some domestically, but his, but his primary market was overseas. And what happened is that the, uh, uh, the shipping line he was using, Sealand, uh, went out of business or stopped doing the business that they were doing in Hawaii. And uh, he then had no alternative as far as his foreign, he had alternatives to foreign shipping, but they had increased the price. And so uh, that's not really the main problem that's facing Hawaii. The main problem that's facing Hawaii is the shipping between the U.S. West Coast and Hawaii, which is, of course, a Jones Act trade. And that's, that's where our focus is. And the reason that uh, we initially put out our proposal, which we uh, call the non-contiguous uh, Jones Act reform proposal, is uh, back in 2010, was to make a very narrow, focused proposal 
that would only deal with the non-contiguous jurisdictions, being the most disadvantaged by this law, and also uh, because we wanted to keep it small in scope and hopefully uh, find some way of uh, having the Congress respond to that as opposed to a much larger uh, approach. For example, uh, Senator McCain's proposal, which he called Open America's Shipping Waters, uh, was a, a proposal that would do away with the build requirement across all vessels and all of the different cabotage laws. This would be everything from uh, seagoing ships, as we proposed, to fishing vessels and uh, the whole range of vessels. And Senator McCain uh, was, until his last time that he introduced the bill last year, was unable to get a single co-sponsor. So that's how difficult even the broader uh, reform effort might be. It's, it's, uh, and then in, uh, this, 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 during this, earlier this year, when he, when he did introduce his, his uh, Open America Waters Act again, uh, he only got uh, the senator from Utah, the junior senator, to sign on. So it's, it's, a, very, it's a very limited area. Right. Tom, you had something? I, I would observe that the Hawaiian rum producer is more radical than my Hawaiian colleagues up here. He wants to repeal the Jones Act, and both of them are more pragmatic, and they just want to get rid of uh, certain portions. But uh, it's, very, it's quite, quite clever, I think maybe realistic probably. But yeah, so in terms of all reforms, you can be radical and repeal the whole thing, as several people have suggested. But uh, so there's almost no, at the moment, almost no political support for that. The other possibilities would be you get rid of it, you get a waiver for one, one area, Puerto Rico or, or Hawaii. And the, or the other one is, I forget the regions, go to specific, uh, the, like the build requirement. And what they've done essentially is to, to do a kind of composite uh, of those two, two approaches. And I, I, I'm sympathetic to this Hawaiian Shippers Council's reform. Well, first of all, I'd like to say I respect the work of Michael Hansen at the Hawaii Shippers Council and hope you'll go to his website and see some of his work. It's some of the best in the world. But we do have a little crosstown rivalry between us in terms of the interpretation of the facts. And the only one I would address is the interpretation of Senator McCain's Keystone uh, Pipeline Rider. When that came out, it was easy to read, and I immediately went online, read it. It, was, it could have been written on the back of an envelope. And specifically, and Mike is right, it called for a removal of the American-built requirement for the Jones Act. Now, what was interesting is that his, Senator McCain's news releases were worded very differently. The w news release out of his office called for a full repeal of the Jones Act. And I couldn't believe the difference. I wasn't sure why that was so. But it resulted in news media and the Democratic Party and the American Maritime Partnership launching a full-on assault across the nation in the media, attacking the, the, the actual proposal, which was very moderate for Senator McCain, because they said it would cost union jobs. They said it, it would invoke all of the usual standard talk point arguments such as even as exotic as saying that uh, OSHA requirements would no longer be uh, used on our ships and therefore they would be sweatshops for human rights abuses and so forth. And Senator McCain's proposal did not invoke that. So the question is, why was it rejected? It wasn't rejected because it was so broad. 
it was rejected because in the wording of the McCain camp, which actually was speaking to his supporters, this was being viewed as something that would be a total repeal of a 100-year-old law. And to my point earlier, I don't think it's going to be easy for us to win a battle in Congress that's a 100-year-old law. I mean, that's a repeal of a 100-year-old law that has tentacles in multiple agencies and untold regulations spawning from it. Instead, let's go for the part of it that has the greatest economic value for those of us in Hawaii, Puerto Rico, Alaska, and across the nation, and that is let's get rid of the U.S. build requirement. And that's not going to be that hard, because for those who have, hold sacred the U.S. security argument, even our military buys ships from our allies. And so all we'd be asking with a, uh, an, a removal of the U.S. build requirement is to allow our commercial shippers to do what our military does, which is to buy vessels from our allies, which could still be American crewed, American flagged, and American owned. It's a much better argument. When you say American shippers, Kaylee, are you referring to the ship owners or to cargo owners? Oh, well, I could be referring to both of them. Oh, really? Shippers are, can be used for both the sender of the shipment and the owner of the ship. Yeah. Thank you. But that brings up to mind um, an interesting thing, looking for pragmatic ways to reform uh, parts of the Jones Act. And I think a generally overlooked fact that was mentioned somewhat earlier um, in the discussion was that the Jones Act is part of this broader web of laws uh, that are very old uh, and that penalize uh, the U.S. economy in a myriad ways. One such similar law is the Foreign Dredge Act of 1906, which Jen alluded to earlier. Now, um, Howard, I'm hoping that you can sort of give us a little bit more insight into what the Foreign Dredge Act is, what are possibilities to reform, and, and, and what can we do here uh, to repeal this? So let me go one step better than my colleagues. Um, and I've been working on opening the U.S. dredging market to investment and competitive bidding by foreign dredgers using U.S. labor, indeed U.S. unionized labor. And let me make three statements about that that should seem patently absurd to all of you. They are all correct. And once you realize they're all correct, you won't wait till the end of this. You'll get up. You'll pick up the phone and start calling Senator Cornyn and the administration, because if anything could come out of today's session, we could at least fix this problem. So here are the three statements about opening the U.S. dredging market to, um, to investment and competition by foreign dredgers. And we're essentially talking about four European companies, two Belgian and two Dutch. Number one, it is the single most important U.S. economic policy initiative today. It is the single most important economic policy initiative in the U.S. today. Number two, it is the most readily attainable. It is low-hanging fruit. And number three, all the objections you've heard, the pushback by the Jones Act supporters, um, not one of them applies to at least making that reform. So let me explain why and how. How could opening the market to bidding, competitive bidding by two Belgian and two Dutch foreign dredgers be the single most important economic policy initiative in the United States today? If you went to the port of Houston and asked if we could only have the capacity and if it was only affordable to get you back to the uh, level from the 2015 hurricane, and then if we could only have the capacity and the funding to get you back to the 2017 hurricane, neither which are they back to yet, and then if we could finally get you to the post-Panamax depths 
double dips, what would that be worth to the US economy? So they were asked that question, and they had third parties study it. And they showed it would create, directly and indirectly, over 1 million US jobs. You ask the 10 ports waiting for dredging, the 10 critical US ports waiting for dredging, that same question. The total job creation just from deepening our 10 ports to post Panamax depths would be 5.5 million American jobs. Now, the last two years of the Obama administration or the first two years of the Trump administration, that's created 4.2 million jobs. This one change would create 5.5 million American jobs. And then if you turn to the Army Corps of Engineers and said, look, I just learned a fascinating fact. We could create 5.5 million American jobs if we can just dredge our 10 ports. When will they be done? They will tell you it's going to take more than 15 years. But if you then open the market to competitive bidding by four companies, it can be done in four years. And how does that happen? We don't have the capacity to do the dredging, and we don't have the money. So each of these ports is sitting with about 50% of what they need to pay to be dredged. And they're waiting for someone who has a free dredge to go do them. But it's not the dredging that's hold, dredgers that's holding them up, because there's, the money doesn't exist anyway. But when the Belgian and Dutch clients bid the same projects, the prices fell in half, 40% to 50% off. The time to complete it fell to a third. And there was enough capacity to do them all right now. So we are sitting in a country that has enough money to dredge every one of its ports right now. There's enough capacity if we open the market to the four largest dredgers. How could that be? Well, they built 19 dredgers in the time we built two. There were 15 dredgers in Europe, and those four companies larger than any dredger in the United States, dredge in the United States. And their largest dredge is three times as large as ours. So they do it differently. They use hopper dredges where we have to build placement areas. So the time for Houston would be cut to a third. The costs are cut in half. There is currently enough money in the United States to do all of our ports simultaneously to be done in four years, creating 5.5 million American jobs without costing a single American job that exists now while we create 5.5 million American jobs, because those companies would use US labor. You don't have to touch the US labor requirement whatsoever. Uh, in the Dredge Act, and you really don't have to touch the Jones Act particularly, because when you amend the Dredge Act, which is the same thing as the Jones Act, all you have to note is, with this waiver or with this amendment, that for purposes of any other statute, construction, moving sand, digging, shall not be considered transportation. That will leave that fight for these guys, for Cato in the long run. But all you have to do is say for, for construction, that isn't true. When we dig sand, we weren't transporting sand. We're just dealing with the Dredge Act. You keep the American labor requirement. You just open it to foreign investment, foreign built ships, uh, and we get our ports done. So um, how is it easily attainable? Well, we could do it for Corpus and Houston tomorrow with the national security waiver. And if you just take a look at either the definition of national security now to include Americans' economic security, or our energy needs to get uh, oil and gas. If you just look at 
Corpus's project with Carlisle now to build a a crude oil terminal, that project, the costs fall more than $100 million and is put online years earlier. And we can finally get oil out out of Corpus. That can be a national security waiver, not affecting a single American job, done on Monday or Tuesday. I figure won't get out till Friday, so let's wait till Monday or Tuesday. But that could be done now. Um, I'm voting for you. There you go. There's not a single question that terrorists come in. It's American crews. There's not a single question that we've lost union jobs. We protect the 3,000 existing ones. We create 5.5 million new ones. Um, None of the classic arguments, any of the arguments matter, and it can be achieved today. So why isn't it? Because it even helps the five existing U.S. dredgers, because ultimately no one's invested in the U.S. dredging market in decades and decades, and they don't have the money to do it themselves. But they just haven't seen it. And the initial reaction is this must be about something against our interests. So that, for real, how to do reform that we can actually achieve, the U.S. build would be great for the, for the long run, but if you just got a waiver tomorrow for Corpus or Houston, and we saw the economic results for creating the American jobs, this is this administration. This isn't give them something. This is them doing it. Um, you would then see, once it was proven in Houston or Corpus, what about Charleston or Savannah? Savannah, we started dredging 18 months ago. They finally got the money. It is further from being complete today time-wise or money-wise, than it was the day they started. Cost overruns and time overruns outlag spending and and time spent. And so Savannah and Boston and Charleston and Jacksonville and Corpus and Houston, we get one waiver, that will all go forward, and at least we can get that sector done. Howard, can I ask you a question? Yes. Are you proposing to reflag or keep the foreign flag on with the U.S. crew? You have a U.S. crew, you waive the requirement of what's the ownership. Ultimately, by the way, these are Belgian and Dutch companies that operate in the United States today. and every, They can install windmills, and they do, offshore windmills. They can do environmental remediation, and they do. They just can't do what they do best, even though they invest in the U.S., in their U.S. subsidiaries. Those subsidiaries just happen not to be allowed to dredge. So they, we allow they, those they, companies they to do they it. They can't own a dredge. Well, they, they can own a dredge, but they can't dredge in the United they States. They can't dredge in the United States, and they can't use one of their dredgers. And where are these dredgers built, by the way? Are these built in, in China? China? No. <laughs> no, these are built in the Netherlands where labor costs are 30% higher and energy costs are 40% higher. They've just spent time competing against each other for 50 years where protectionism meant nobody in the U.S. had to invest. They could take their profits out. So they built 19 ships, 15 bigger than anything we've ever had. Well, we've built nothing. So you are talking about having a foreign flag dredge. Right. uh, Probably through a U.S. subsidiary. Yes. With a U.S. crew on board. Yes. And so you need the waiver for the uh, flag, and you need the waiver for the the ownership. Of the Dredge Act, not of the Jones Act, and then we need a provision in that waiver. The problem with some of that terminology is that Often people mean all of the U.S. cabotage as the Jones Act. Right. But you're, you're, you're referring to uh, Section 27 of the Merchant Marine Act of 1920. So, um, so this is for the Foreign Dredge Act of 1906. I understand. And since the lift is too hard generally to get something done in the short, the best way to get it done is prove the small and then generalize after if you want to do that. Prove the small is 
This is one little subset of why we're here today, but that subset should be a no-brainer. You know, I would have loved to have seen Howard in all his glory when he was the ambassador to Belgium negotiating on our behalf. We might not have had Brexit because you're so <laughs> talented in that. But I actually, putting aside the details of your proposal, what I really like about it is it's part of a category of proposals that says, let's get industry involved in seeing what value there is in reforming the Jones Act or the Dredge Act so that money will flow for the purposes of lobbying. And when you bring the, in the construction industry and you have a project so massive as dredging across the entire United States, you're talking about the flow of capital. And part of the reason that the Jones Act remains in place is simply that the American Maritime Partnership and the others who promote the Jones Act have the capital flow going to our policymakers. As one person put it once, there's just not enough money in politics. Maybe if the Cato Institute can give more money to our uh, congressional members, we'll see a change in the Jones Act. It has to be the C4 of the Cato, I suppose. But th my point is this. A, a realistic change of the Jones Act has to demonstrate to industry that there is financial value in the change, and then what will happen is the political will will follow. Well, so Howard, you raised an interesting point that made me think a little bit about when we think about the dredgers, and they're European companies. Um, if we expand this to think about Jones Act reform in general, too, and the Dredge Act, is there some value to thinking about well, the national security argument says, you know, we're afraid of letting foreign companies in to compete with us, or, or they might undermine our national security. <coughs> How do NATO allies, uh, as these companies are, uh, potentially damage our national security? You know, that's a good question to raise. And could we think of a broader exemption for our allies when it comes to both the Dredge Act and also general coastwise trade? And how would that work? So when I said that not one of the traditional arguments applies, um, first of all, these are Belgian and Dutch-owned companies that already operate in the U.S. They're allowed into the U.S. They're allowed into environmental remediation, far more sensitive. They just can't do this because of a law passed in 1906. But second, if you even bought that we needed a merchant marine fleet to someday defend ourselves, could you see um, uh, Secretary Mattis saying, oh my God, we're being attacked, call up the dredgers. Bring them into battle. You don't, dredgers aren't part of the, the national security fleet. Or could you see them, the argument, Belgians could be sneaking into our country. You're, you, are, you are keeping the 75% US labor requirement. And then there are some executives who own second homes in New York because they have operations here. By the way, American dredgers own homes in Europe. I mean, you know, this is just, from 1906, it had no idea what the world would look like today in this area more than any. There is no national security issue other than the national security issue that if we don't dredge Houston and we don't dredge Corpus, we don't dredge, um, we, we can't get energy out of our ports, we can't compete economically. The, it's national security alone the minute I say 5.5 million American jobs. I think it's worth noting that the American dredging industry is part of the American Maritime Partnership. And the American, par American Maritime Partnership is the primary lobbying uh, organization for all of these, uh, these cabotage interests. And they're pretty well stitched together in, 
in insisting that this nothing get changed because they have this camel's nose under the tent idea that if you give them an inch, they're going to take a mile. And what I would say is anyone who thought they were part of cabotage has never seen a dredge. They are part of the American Construction Council, whatever that trade association is, and they get no protection. These same companies can build the port building. And they do sometimes. It just can't touch the water. Yeah, that's right. But and so this is the construction group. It's the same. They're digging in the same earth. It just got the water over it instead of the land over it. They're part of the construction council. So whoever thought the camel's nose was going into the tent, the camels have run so far from the tent in that case, <laughs> have we're not the in the desert. We're nowhere in the desert. Go ahead, Tom. I have a, I have a question about both of these proposals. So the, the Hawaiian, Hawaiian Shippers Council proposal asking for an exemption, but for some specific, two specific purposes, right? One is the big ships exempt, and then the building requirements. Fairly well-defined. Well, yeah, all we want is what our proposal was. It was an early proposal, and we were trying to narrow it as right. much as possible. So self-propelled ships over 1,000 gross tons right. in the non-contiguous trades. Right. Very narrow, very targeted, so that we draw the least amount of opposition possible. Right. I, I, I agree. I'm thinking about a, a, a comment made earlier, I think it was by Ann Kruger, about if you make exemptions, which bureaucrat decides who gets the exemption, who doesn't? You get a massive bureaucracy. I think this and yours is fairly narrow. Things are pretty well defined. So only certain kind of ships, certain areas. Now I'm thinking about this waiver seems more vague. Uh, I, think Howard, I think Howard's got a good idea because he's saying, give us a waiver and we'll show you what we can do. Yeah. And after that, then I'm sure, Howard, you're looking for something permanent. We'll start with Ted Cruz and John Cornyn calling Donald Trump and saying, you know, Houston and Corpus kind of critical to our energy, and Houston is not back from 2015, then we got 2017, then we got post-Panamax. There's not a nickel of federal funding. It's not an authorized project. They're paying for it privately, and they can get started now, done in two years, at half the cost. This doesn't take a lot to at least start Houston. If it doesn't work, okay. Sure. I but, have a feeling if Houston's done in two years at half the cost, the rest with of the only rest, American labor creating a million American jobs, yeah, the rest of the world will know. Yeah, sure. Well, it's interesting, and, and what I keep coming back to from this panel and other panels that came before is that there's no shortage of ideas for how to move forward. I think that there's been plenty put down on the table for how to move away from the Jones Act and make this little uh, less of a burden on the American economy. But there always seems to be something that we stumble on, and that seems to be the politics of it, of course. Uh, and it reminded me, when I was preparing my notes for this, I was reading the floor statement by the late Senator John McCain um, for something that was mentioned earlier, which was uh, the amendment he made to the approval in the Keystone XL pipeline in January 2015. And I want to read a little bit of that floor statement to you, and I think that perfectly captures some of the problems that we're facing in moving forward with reform. He stated, as clear as the benefits of free trade are, taking action here to remove trade barriers and open markets can be almost impossible here in Congress. Special interests that have long and richly benefited from protectionism flex their muscles and issue doomsday warnings about the consequences of moving forward on free trade. 
And judging from my amendment and the historical reaction by some of the special interests to simply filing it, the debate over the Jones Act will be no different. So I asked my panel a little bit to sort of respond to this. I mean, what are some of these forces that have been impeding progress on Jones Act reform? This is a law that's been around for almost 100 years now. And you could also say that the, uh, these requirements have been around for 200 years. The first real cabbage judge law in the United States was passed in 1817 after the War of 1812 uh, and continuing disputes between the US and the Brits regarding uh, the use of American ships in the Caribbean trade. And so it's been there for a long, long time. And uh, the interests have uh, become, uh, of, over many generations, have become uh, accustomed to being protected. And uh, this group is highly organized. You've got the labor side, and you've got the uh, ship operating side, and the ship builders. And, when you, and they pool their resources, and they work actively to, to, uh, to defend the Jones Act. And somehow you have to be able to uh, develop enough uh, uh, of an effort on the other side in order to counteract that. The guy who's had the most experience with this is Rob Cortell, leading the Jones Act Reform Coalition, or JARC, in the 1990s. And uh, they made some real progress in terms of, of, of getting some uh, proposals out and, and garnering some political support. But in the end, uh, they were defeated by the, by the cabotage group. At that time, uh, the American Maritime Partnership was known as the Maritime Cabotage Task Force. And uh, they certainly were able to stop that particular effort. Uh, yeah, why is it so difficult? We've heard a lot that the, that the benefits are, are concentrated and the costs are spread. That's certainly a difficult, difficult issue. The other one, I think, is that national security somehow persuades a lot of people. And we heard a session now, we, we think that a lot of us think that national security claims are greatly exaggerated. You look at what's happened to the shipbuilding industry, down. What's happened to the size of the American fleet, down, et cetera. So those are two difficult issues. On the other hand, I don't think we should be completely negative about the chances for reform. I would look back a little bit and say, once upon a time, there were tariffs among the states in the United States. Before the Constitution, we had Articles of Confederation in which one state imposed a tariff against other states. And then you had a constitutional convention and you finally got agreement that we have free trade among the states. And this, I think this Commerce Clause is one of the main reasons for the great prosperity of the United States. So, so that's, that's not all negative. I think one of the good things about this conference today is we've heard about the economic costs of the Jones Act. We've looked at some of the research and the need for more research. So on the financial side, we can see that uh, it's a losing proposition except for a small group of people who are making money. Now, what gives them power is something psychological, and that is the almost religious belief that the Jones Act results in national security or that the Jones Act creates better working conditions and protection of jobs for union members. Now, the important thing to realize is that those two beliefs are predicated upon three of the four planks of the Jones Act. They're predicated upon the U.S. crude, U.S. flagged, and U.S. owned uh, features of the Jones Act. So reform efforts that attack the whole Jones Act 
invoke these two psychological uh, religious beliefs, and they're very hard to get rid of. I, I have friends who are high-level brass in the Navy League, and they know the facts about the Jones Act, that the Jones Act is not really resulting in national security, but because it's a doctrine embraced by higher-ups in the military, they have to embrace it. So I think in answer to your question, one of the reasons it's been so hard to bring about change in the Jones Act is that our industry of the think tank world has largely gone after proposals for the total repeal of the Jones Act. And as I said earlier, even though the goods by the other, the other side gets from the three planks that are not the build requirement are illusory, why not let them have that? And let's focus on a more narrow uh, approach, which is showing the benefits of reforming the build requirement. Uh, I would uh, also note that uh, uh, there is quite a lot of claim on the pro-Jones Act side that American shipyards are far superior to foreign shipyards and produce a better product. And so they haven't given up that plank yet. But just two things on that. For American shipyards, they can and are owned by foreigners. Yes. So that's mine by we're protecting the American shipyard. First of all, nobody's building dredges in America, right? They've built two in the last two decades. So nobody's building dredges over the last decade. Number one. Number two, the main shipyards are foreign-owned, whereas the dredgers can't be. Well, there's, so, there's, se there's seven what they call major shipbuilding yards in the United States. Okay, five of them build only military vessels, right. military ships. Two of them build, uh, uh, build only commercial vessels, and those two are foreign-owned. One is Philadelphia, the other one is, and that's owned by Norwegians. Right. And the other one is Halter Marine, which is owned by uh, a Singapore company. Right. And the third one is owned by uh, General Dynamics. That's the Nazco shipyard in San Diego. And that builds both commercial and military vessels. Those are the major shipbuilding yards in the United States. The ones that build the deep draft, uh, ocean-going ships, over a thousand gross tons that that is that the uh, non-contiguous jurisdictions rely upon for their cargo flows. So and that's a major issue. And, and by the way, if we did open at least to dredging, can you imagine if ten ports were being done simultaneously of the number of barges and tugs and things we do build in our shipyards? Our shipyards would actually have a renaissance at that level to to support that effort. And the only ones you could possibly claim is a Norwegian and a Singapore-owned operation. And you ask, why is the opposition so big? Well, on that issue, if you can picture out there 330 million Americans, and here five, one, two, three, four, five, that's the split. Because the US dredging industry is three to 5,000 people total. All of them would be employed regardless of who owned the company. There's only five companies that can even think about doing any of these projects, the large port projects. So it's the five CEOs, all of whom, by the way, would end up making more money in affiliation with foreigners coming in. But at most, it's 330 million to five. So how can't we beat five people? Misinformation, the American Maritime Partnership not realizing their construction and we're maritime. 
but it's only five American companies, and all their employees immediately get um, used, and many more have to be hired if we're going to do all 10 ports at once. But then the jobs created by ports being done is the five million. And all you have to do is get the Congress to agree. That's what your job is. <laughs> My job was to educate you. The rest are supposed to get up and make the phone calls now. Well, I want to turn uh, now to the audience to ask some questions, uh, as I think you've got a lot probably to ask for our panel. Um, I just want to remind you to please state your name and affiliation and uh, keep it to a question, please. So uh, we have one in the front here. Dave Onspot, no affiliation. I'm just wondering, what kind of um, protections exist in other countries, you know, like China, Canada, EU, Brazil, Australia, regarding sh shipping between the ports in their, in their countries? Do they have equivalents to Jones Act in those countries? Are foreign ships allowed to operate within those countries' waters between their ports? That, that you know, that, that, that's that. Thanks. Yeah, there's, uh, what's, uh, Internationally, it's known as cabotage, or maritime cabotage. And uh, most of the coastal and riverine countries in the world have some degree of cabotage restrictions. Uh, typically, they, uh, they may restrict their, uh, their river and uh, ocean traffic domestically uh, to ships that are registered in the country. In other words, flying the flag of the country. And uh, generally, there's some kind of a crewing requirement. But ownership is not always required. And uh, there's only two countries now in the world that I'm aware of that actually have a domestic build requirement. And um, one is Peru, and the other one is Nigeria. So as they say, do you want to join that company or not? Yeah, many countries have these restrictions. There's an index, OECD index, that shows what they are. The U.S. is uh, more restrictive than the average, and Inu and her colleagues have a, a paper in which they, they, they cite this in the OECD index. So it's, it's, it's common, but it's more severe in the U.S. And I would say one more thing is if, if people think this is a burden, and it is a burden, if it's an economic efficiency, if they all got together and negotiated, they could negotiate them down, and everybody would gain. Right. The, the American system of cabotage is sometimes referred to as super cabotage because it's so much more restrictive than, uh, than the international norm. In, in the dredging world, the rest of the free world is open to these four companies do the rest of the free world without antitrust because they hate each other and they bid against each other. They, don't, they compete very hard against each other. Not they hate each other, they compete very hard, but they do it all over, including Canada has reached an agreement and they can do Canada. Singapore shipbuilders and ship, uh, I mean, excuse me, Singapore shipping company owners call the Jones Act the granddaddy of all protectionism. Sure. Another question, uh, one here. Edward Cattell. Um, I think it's a mistake to focus on the American flag, American crew, American ownership as a solution. If we give them that, will win. Um, I do not think that the American carriers, the ship owners, really care that much about it. But their big issue is if you repeal the Jones Act and somebody can come onto, into my trade with capital equipment that costs 10% of what I paid, 
It's going to kill me. Now, me being hurt economically is not something I can sell. But if I can get a bunch of admirals and wave the flag and beat the drum, that's a really good showmanship kind of argument. So it seems to me that if you really want to try to diffuse the opposition, you've got to defang the guys who are trying to protect their economic interest. And the way to do that is to take, you know, Matt's in line, a whole bunch of brand new container ships built at Acre in Philadelphia, cost them hundreds of millions of dollars. If somebody can compete with the same ships built in Korea for a third or 20%, a fifth of the price, it, it's difficult. But if part of the program to end this Jones Act build requirement once and for all, no subsidies, no waivers, just get rid of it, would be buy out their equity, the differential between what they would have had to pay for a Korean ship and what they had to pay for a U.S. Jones Act ship, so that they are now standing economically equal with their potential competitors, that could be a solution. Now, why would Congress say, let's pay all that money? I think the answer is that to change the Jones Act and take away the economic value of these vessels is potentially a Fifth Amendment taking that the government's going to have to pay for anyway. And there's actually a precedential case from the Court of Claims in the D.C. Circuit that held exactly that. So work on, it just seems to me, work on the carrot that we talked about a little bit earlier of buying out the loss for these vessel owners so that they are now going forward equal to their competitors. I'd like comments on that. I think that, what you're suggesting is similar to the old production subsidy, uh, that idea. And you would have competition, but the production subsidy would come from the taxpayers. It, right. One time only. No, you're, absolutely, you're absolutely correct that, that whatever, doing away with the build requirement would have to involve some kind of compensation for the existing ship owners uh, because their, uh, the value of the vessels on the books is going to be uh, a lot larger than what it would cost to build a, a similar foreign flagship or foreign built ship. Uh, and so that would have to be something that would be, that would be part of the, um, of the arrangement to provide for the ending of it. But in addition to that, uh, there is a notion amongst the ship owners that they prefer to have the US build requirement and the very high price of US ship construction because it creates a barrier to entry yes. for other, uh, for other uh, new entrants to come into their market. And uh, they rely, and, and this is a very real thing, is that they, even though they're paying uh, considerably more money for the ship than they would have to on the world market, that this provides them an additional protection in addition to, what the, uh, in addition to the other Jones Act protections. On, and this is an issue that you'd have to deal with there. It, that part doesn't apply over to the dredging because we're talking about expanding the number of ports able to do. We don't have the capacity already. Those ships could all be deployed on projects they're more suited for. I think that this, this idea of a buyout has been talked about before. I think James Coleman mentioned this this morning. Also, in the old tobacco program, 
It was a similar program. They were bought out a few years ago by the taxpayer, so it has been done, could be done. Question in the front. Thanks, uh, Justin LeBlanc, Crossroads Strategies. Uh, again, represent Seattle-based commercial fishing interests. I've found the discussion about reform of the Jones Act either through some sort of sectoral uh, exemption or, or repeal of some, if not all, of the requirements of the Jones Act, Jones Act to be interesting. I'd like to solicit the panel's thoughts on what, what uh, I consider to be not the way to reform the Jones Act, and that is through these one-off vessel-specific waivers that we see from time to time move through Congress. We just had one on the Coast Guard Act uh, from last week uh, that exempted one particular commercial fishing vessel. And the problem with those one-off waivers is that while they may demonstrate uh, or be a case study of, of the burdens and the problems with the Jones Act, Within the sector, they create an unfair advantage to the entity that gets that one-off waiver. So I'd just I'd like to solicit the feedback from the panel on that. Do you want to take that? Well, ship-specific waivers are subject, of course, to politics. Yeah. And that's not a good thing overall. But uh, I would like to lump that together with many efforts that are taking place to find geographic-specific or industry-specific efforts. For example, I think there's nothing wrong with the fact that some in Hawaii want an LNG exemption. Uh, it, there's nothing wrong with the fact that Puerto Rico would like a geographic exemption. Alaska has at least half a dozen specific industry exemptions and so forth. Th nothing wrong with those being advocated from the locality up. But... Overall, they're not going to do the heavy lifting of transforming the protectionism uh, negative effects of the Jones Act, and that's what we need. I think we need to be able to show two things. Number one, that the Jones Act is a nationwide problem, a national problem. That, and number two, that the average person is impacted by it. Uh, I briefed Senator Ted Cruz, who was mentioned earlier here, once on the Jones Act, and at the end I turned around and asked him for some advice. I said, what would you do in order to bring about change in the Jones Act? And he thought about it, and he said, I would show how bad the Jones Act is in a commercial that had pictures of starving Hispanic children. Think about that for a minute. Putting a face on the problem. So make the problem that... So there's nothing wrong with the specific kinds of waivers you're talking about, but they don't do the work of accomplishing a national reform, and a nationwide reform is going to require people at home who can actually feel the pain of the Jones Act and see it as a very personal thing. And that's why the story of the Kaloa Rum Company and other stories is so effective. It shows that there are hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of businesses that are really suffering because of the Jones Act. I think you were referring to America's Finest. Correct. Yes, yeah. yes. And uh, the problems they ran into with uh, the use of uh, formed steel that was imported from the Netherlands, I believe. Uh, in your uh, position, are you, uh, say, for example, uh, with Senator McCain's Open America Waters Act, uh, is that something you would have been in favor of because it touched on fishing vessels, or would you not be? Yeah, I think, I think the idea is more that uh, everybody within that fishing sector would have to play by the same rules. So it's, it's whether, whether we're all subject to this Jones Act or we're exempt from the Jones Act, everybody <coughs> in the pond together. Right. So the water analogy that company-specific one-off vessel waivers that pervade that create a competitive advantage for that one company as it relates to their competitors in the sector is in an inappropriate way to see. 
Did America's Finest get a new waiver? I'm not aware yes. of it. Oh, they, they just got, got one. Uh, right. They're limited in, in what they can do. They must have some clout, clout somewhere. <laughs> Take another question. Um, right in the front here. Hello, Noilani Bonifacio with the Republican Study Committee in the House. Um, so I'm from Hawaii, and um, kind of going back to your point, um, Kili'i, about um, the increased prices of food and energy in Hawaii, and Mike, you kind of touched upon this. Um, I think the people in Hawaii have a difficult time connecting the prices of you know, food and energy with the Jones Act. So I was wondering if there are any um, studies that quantify the effect that the Jones Act has on the average consumer. Well, Leilani, uh, there are many studies, uh, but frankly, they're not good enough. And they, they're contradictory of each other. And that's why we support what was said in an earlier panel, that there needs to be a rigorous cost-benefit analysis. Uh, with that, I'd also like to apologize that it's the Jones Act that has raised our cost of living in Hawaii so much that we have such a brain drain that our finest like you, Leilani, have to leave and come and work in Washington, D.C. We hope you can make enough money up here so you can afford a mortgage back home. Uh, on the corner here. <coughs> uh, William Hemsley, Legislative Construct. What is the present immediate political nexus for the eff effective repeal or adjustment of the Jones Act other than the Cato Institute? Who else is working? Uh, who else is working on the reform I, th I think there's a, a number of different groups that are working. For example, Manuel Reyes in Puerto Rico, there's, his group has been very active in the Jones Act. Uh, there's other people in Puerto Rico that have uh, taken some, uh, some action in that regard. Um, about yeah, there's, uh, it's, there's no national organization like there was uh, in the 1990s with the Jones Act Reform Coalition. The, the kind of coalition that's going to be effective has to really cross political aisles. It, it can't simply be conservatives, libertarians, or Republicans battling for Jones Act reform. And there's good news. There are Democrats that are starting to see how the Jones Act doesn't live up to its promises. In Hawaii, as it has been mentioned, Ed Case, a Democrat, has become our Congressional District 1 representative, and he's going to be bringing a different voice to the Hawaii delegation. But probably the most promising hope is with the unions themselves. All throughout our country, we're seeing unions realizing the fact that they need transformation in order to meet the needs of their members. And a growing number of members, we can tell you certainly in the state of Hawaii, are seeing that the Jones Act itself is not beneficial to them as simple, simply as regular citizens who have to pay cost of living like everyone else. And so the more that we can get people who do not line up with one political ideology uh, working together to modify the Jones Act, the more successful we will be. And I just want to add, in terms of uh, our project on Jones Act reform at the Cato Institute, it is a bipartisan effort. And that's what we are trying to do by reaching out to people on both sides out to figure out what their stories are, to figure out what their interests are. Um, and we see this as something that is not a Democrat or Republican issue, but really something that touches everyone in the United States, regardless of political affiliation. So I think the more that we research and figure out what's going on with the Jones Act, we hear all these stories from all over the United States 
states of how people have been negatively affected. And so I think at the end of the day, the full reform or repeal of the Jones Act is going to come from everyone working together uh, to address this issue that they all share. Is it possible that Rob Quartel will make a comeback? <laughs> Next question. Uh, right? John King, uh, speaking for myself. Uh, I'm a retired budget analyst uh, from the Pentagon who spent most of his time working for the Navy, an institution that has never built a ship on time or on budget. But we have seen examples where uh, innovators are willing to take risks have come in and help the, the, the price and cost structure. Uh, the guy I'm thinking of, for example, is uh, Elon Musk, SpaceX, where the uh, number of manufacturers was down to two, and they formed a consortium so they could overcharge the Air Force and satellite costs, at least on the booster phase. But when he came in, he went down the supply chain for the booster rockets, and when he didn't like the answers, he basically constructed from scratch the engineering talent to make and improve all of those systems. And when he first came in with the bid to the Air Force, it was basically at 50 cents of a dollar. So the Air Force was shocked. But he attacked the cost structure, and now you got Jeff Bezos right behind him and, to, uh, and uh, also on uh, driving those prices down. Do we have nothing like that in the ship construction industry where we could drive the cost side of the equation down to at least equalize the prices? Yeah, I would uh, say that you might draw an analogy with uh, Austal, USA Inc., operating in Alabama. That's an Australian company that uh, builds uh, aluminum vessels, uh, high-speed uh, vessels for the military almost exclusively. They were also the yard that built the uh, vessels for the Hawaii Super Ferry that ended up uh, uh, being repossessed by Marad. But the, uh, that's an Australian company that's highly successful in, uh, in uh, selling into the world market from their shipyard in Western Australia. They also have a major yard in the Philippines that they use uh, for their international uh, contracts. Uh, yet when they came to the United States, basically as a military contractor, their pricing is not that much different from the other uh, uh, military contractors building ships. And uh, just exactly why they haven't been able to be uh, more successful in lowering their costs, I'm not sure. Maybe the, um, there was no incentive for them to do that. But certainly, military construction costs for ships has been escalating, and it's a major problem for the national defense budget. And one of the arguments in support of the Jones Act, and especially the Jones Act uh, domestic build requirement, is that by uh, requiring that all ships used domestically in the United States be built in the United States, that will bolster the, uh, the shipbuilding industry and, and make, it, uh, make that industry more competitive and at lower cost for national defense purposes. But that doesn't appear to have uh, worked out that way. Well, I'm going to wrap up the session here, actually, because I realize we're getting close to the debate. Uh, and I hope you stick around for that. And you can continue to ask our panelists some questions as we set up for that. But uh, now I just want you to join me in thanking this panel for an excellent discussion. Thank you.